Let's read our passage for today. It's Luke 22, 14 through 34. When the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of one, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. Then a dispute also arose among them about who would be considered the greatest. But he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them have called themselves benefactors. It's not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I'll come back to this passage in a moment, but I want to ask you guys if your family has ever argued at the dinner table. Any, any arguments here? Uh, I spent one of my first holidays with Mark and his extended family about 20 years ago, and there were lots of uncles and cousins and aunts and people I didn't know very well at that point, and there were two long tables and two adjoining rooms because there were so many people there and we needed to hold everyone. Uh, the work to prepare the Thanksgiving dinner had been laborious and served by Mark's mom and some others who were in the kitchen. And finally, everyone was seated. All the kids were like rounded up. We were sitting in front of all these steaming dishes of Thanksgiving food. And then someone prayed, probably Mark's dad, and he probably gave thanks to God for the family that could gather together, uh, the, the hands that prepared the food, the blessings that we were all recipients of. And it was a beautiful moment. He said amen, and as I began looking at the food on the table in front of me, a loud voice erupted from the other room, and I heard one of the relatives shouting what seemed like the top of his lungs at another relative, criticizing him for supporting a politician who I quote to you is a freaking son of Satan. And this was our Thanksgiving meal as it commenced. Uh, in this moment of celebration, and an argument ensued, contention ensued. It was so obvious that these two individuals had completely missed the point of us all being there together. Can anyone relate to this at all? Anybody had family moments like this? Um, the point was to unite, right, despite our differences and give thanks for our common blessings. And as followers of Jesus, I think we often miss the point, too, of being part of the family of God. You know, we forget the things that should draw us together to 
toward each other in love. Often we get contentious about who's wrong and who's right. We, we're quick to get angry at our fellow Christian, and sometimes it's right to be angry at the choices of someone if they're doing harm, but it's never right to be contentious. Yet we get that way sometimes uh, when we disagree about our politicians or our vaccines or our elections or whether women should be pastors or not. We can get contentious about all this. But disagreement, it doesn't require contention. It doesn't require dishonor of someone else. And yet disagreement can often cause us to feel threatened. Perhaps sometimes not all the time. Sometimes we feel threatened because in our heart of hearts, we just want others to see the greatness in us. You know, we, we want them to see the greatness in us through our ability to think through complicated situations and ferret out the truth and make right judgments. Maybe we mistakenly sometimes just conflate our greatness as human beings made in the image of God with all of our opinions and ideas. And if someone doesn't agree with us, sometimes it can feel like they don't see our greatness, right? It's why we can get so threatened and it feels so personal at times when people don't agree with us. And let's be honest with ourselves. Sometimes we don't think other people made in the image of God are that great when we hear some of the things that they think or believe. But true greatness, as it's defined by Jesus, is so different than how we typically think about greatness. And Jesus's idea of greatness will always lead us toward other Christians with love, toward everyone with love, really. And I think we'll see in the passage for today that to be truly great, we don't need to have persuasive arguments for all of our beliefs and opinions. We don't uh, have to jockey for power over anyone else. To be truly great, we just have to take on the attitude of Christ, which means we emulate him by letting go of our concern over whether others value us as highly as we think they should and simply look to be a servant and to be a blessing to others. And this is greatness as defined by Jesus. The idea of greatness, it really hovers behind everything that I've read to you this morning from scripture. Uh, we saw Jesus entering the city and the whole throng of his disciples see him as great. Here's our great king coming into the city. They're shouting Hosanna. They're waving branches to him. They're throwing uh, down their cloaks on the ground for him and the donkey. And Jesus is like a bride, you know, walking on a runner down the aisle on her wedding day. Uh, so they're excited about this king who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's being called great by this crowd of people, but then there are others there who are disputing Jesus's greatness. The Pharisees see a guy coming into the city on a donkey, not exactly the vehicle of choice for royalty in those days. Um, Jesus was not like waving through the sunroof of a Hummer, you know, like or a stretch Hummer or a limo or anything like that. And so the Pharisees are objecting. They're telling Jesus, tell your disciples to shut up. Like, tell them to stop praising you. And Jesus is like, no, my praise is inevitable. You know, it can't be stopped. Even if, even the rocks behold my greatness, you know, and they'll cry out if these people don't praise me. So he's coming into the city at the time of Passover. And that's a time when a lot of pilgrims would come into Jerusalem to go to the temple to worship. And the Passover feast was a reenactment of a meal that the Israelites ate right before God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Any of you remember this story or you know the story a little bit? This is way back in the day. It's kind of like Thanksgiving, like celebrating uh, what we now know as a colonialist sort of uh, complicated, difficult uh, holiday that we celebrate. 
um, in, in response to the Pilgrim's First Feast, right? But um, they are reenacting this feast. Uh, they ate a Passover meal together. Uh, the, the original meal uh, was their ancestors killing a lamb, taking some of the blood from the lamb, painting it on the doorpost of their home at God's direction. And the blood on the doorpost was the sign that God's judgment was going to pass over them. Like he was going to judge the Egyptians for enslaving them, but he was going to pass over the Israelites and protect them from his judgment. And so Jews in Jesus' time, they were hoping for a new leader like Moses, who was going to lead them out of Roman oppression, just like Moses led the, Egyptian, or the Israelites out of oppression from Pharaoh. They weren't looking for a new Passover lamb to sacrifice. They were looking for a new leader. And so here we are. Jesus is, he's entered the city a few days later. He's excited to be eating the Passover meal with his disciples because he understands that the elements of this meal are important. They're significant. They're symbolic of what is going to happen to him in the next 24 hours. And it's also his last chance, you know, to be with the disciples before his suffering, to, to enjoy family time with them. And so they're reclining together. They're enjoying this wonderful meal. The tryptophan is starting to kick in, and maybe they're getting drowsy. And Jesus is saying things like, I love this moment with you guys. I've looked forward to it for so long. I'm not going to do this again with you for a long time. Do you see this bread in my hand? This is my body that's about to be broken for you. Do you see this cup of wine? Well, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. My blood will be shed for the forgiveness of sin. I'm going to be the Passover lamb. It has to happen this way. It's meant to be. Now, for days, Jesus has been trying to tell his disciples that he's going to suffer and die. And they ha he gets mixed reactions. Sometimes they believe him. Other times they don't. They, they're all over the map. My sense is they were just wavering all the time. But here he says it again, I'm going to die. But then he adds a scandalous bit of information. Uh, he shocks them all by saying, one of you at this table is going to betray me. One of you 12 is not like the other. And <clears throat> Luke says they began to question among themselves, you know, which, <clears throat> excuse me, which one of them it might be. Who would do this? Who was going to betray Jesus? Can you imagine how defensive they all must have felt? Like when somebody started naming names, uh, at the idea, at the suggestion that any of them would have a treacherous heart, that any of them would betray Jesus. And then their defensiveness with each other, it led to a dispute. It led to this full-blown argument at the Passover table, an argument about who was greater. Because if one disciple could convince all the other disciples that he was the greatest, then there'd be no doubt of his faithfulness. There'd be no doubt that he would not ever betray Jesus. No one would question his loyalty. And so they're arguing, they're flexing with one another, and maybe it sounded a little bit like, well, I've healed more blind eyes than any of you, you know? Or like, I cast out more demons than you, so I must be greater. Do you guys remember that time I multiplied food? Don't forget that. You know, I must be greater. 
Early on in our marriage, somebody remarked to me that she thought Mark and I never had conflict, that if we did have conflict or disagreement, she just imagined we sat in our living room like politely and quietly having civilized conversations with each other. And I assured her that even though we might seem quiet and sweet, we certainly had conflict and it wasn't pretty. Most of us in our intimate friendships or our marriage relationships or our family of origin relationships, we have found ourselves embroiled in conflict that isn't pretty. And at the risk of sounding overly simplistic, I'll just say that I think one factor uh, in all of the defensiveness and contention we might find coming from ourselves comes from this fear that other people don't see our greatness. They didn't like you leaving the dishes out and they said so. They didn't care for your tone of voice. They were hurt by it. They didn't love how you were on your phone all through dinner and they said something about it. Uh, you were late or didn't show up at the coffee shop and they don't really want to talk to you right now. You know, when somebody points out our faults or blame is cast toward us, whether it's right or wrong, it almost seems like we're a little bit hardwired to start scrabbling together reasons why we're still amazing, <laughs> you know, reasons why we're still good and reasons why we're still great and worthy of love. And unfortunately, sometimes that takes us down a destructive path where um, not always, but sometimes as we're trying to defend our greatness, um, we can start laying claim to it in the way that the disciples were doing at the table with Jesus, blaming the other, posturing over the other, accusing the other. Now, you, we might say things like, I was too busy doing something for you to put away the dishes. Um, I was only on my phone because you're sometimes on your phone, and I didn't think it would be a big deal. Um, I don't know why you're making such a big deal about me being late. You've been late before. Um, do you guys hear the blame and the accusation that it's just subtle in those reactions? Blame and, and accusation, just as we see in the table with the disciples, it escalates conflict, right? It triggers in the other person then a felt need to defend their greatness, which can lead to more blame and more accusation. And the conflict can just go round and round and round, and it can get you know, bigger and bigger with neither person feeling loved or valued or seen. In our attempts to prove our greatness to ourselves and others, we might find ourselves breaking the, the commandment from God to love our neighbors as ourselves. We want to be seen and we want to be heard and we want to be valued, but often we fail to demonstrate that we see and hear and value our neighbor. So Jesus is seeing this mess unfold at the table and then he swoops in and I imagine he sounds like any parent who's just fed up with listening to their kids argue at the table. I imagine he's like, guys, stop this, you know, stop now. And he says, don't you know that the Gentile kings like Caesar and all his governors who you can't stand, don't you know that they are considered great, but that in their greatness, they wield power to oppress you. Don't you know that those who exercise authority in this government system that you're in and think of themselves as great, don't you know they're the ones who treat you like crap? They're the ones who take your money. Uh, in their greatness, in their eliteness, they don't demonstrate any care for you. So don't aspire to be great like that. <clears throat> Instead, in verse 26, he says, Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. 
For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Uh, it's reported in another gospel that Jesus had washed the feet of his disciples on this evening, demonstrating that he came as God to serve them. And Jesus' whole life was poured out in service to people. I mean, his entire ministry was devoted to finding people and calling them into God's family. He literally wandered the region looking for sick people, looking for demon-oppressed people, looking for um, poor people and condemned people just so that he could give them a taste of this glorious, saving, restoring, freeing kingdom of God. He did it even when he was weary and hot and tired and hungry. He gave away tastes of the Father's love through his service to human beings made in the image of God. And so Jesus says, the, the person here who is greatest, whoever you determine that to be, whoever that is, well, a mark of his greatness is that he doesn't put on airs. He doesn't feel entitled to honors. In fact, he acts like the youngest among you, not entitled or privileged to anything more than the rest of you. And whoever has charge over the group, whoever is given some authority over anything, whoever finds themselves in that position, well, he should use that position to serve just as, as I have. This is how greatness is defined in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, Jesus honors them for their service that they've given so far. In verses 28 through 30, he says, you are those who stood by me in my trials. And he doesn't mention here, but they're going to suffer and serve a whole lot more for Jesus. And he says, I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you'll sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a great reward for their service, Jesus says. He's saying, you know, you guys have done some of the hardest things anyone would ever have to do to stand by me in my trials. And so I am going to share my kingdom with you. At the feast in my new kingdom, you guys are in the wedding party. You get to sit at the table with the bridegroom. You get to get served first, but not here. You know, in our home, we don't have a lot of trouble telling each other when we're hurt. That's pretty easy for us. The harder part is apologies. And we can be really touchy about apologies at our house. There can't be any hint of blame or excuse in them, or they just don't land well. Uh, they won't fix things. There can't be like the slightest note of, well, it's partly your fault, but I'm the better person, so I'm going to apologize first. Like, there can't be that. Um, when we can lay down our fear, though, of not being seen for our greatness or of not being valued, when we can know that we have an inheritance and a better and a lasting kingdom than the one we're currently experiencing. And when we know that God sees our value, it's a lot easier to serve and use our power to help heal another person's pain. Adopting the attitude of Christ Jesus is just laying down our agenda to get the other person to agree with us or see that we're great. It's refusing to blame or accuse. It's it's, it's laying down an agenda to force them to think a particular way. It's saying, I'm sorry I hurt you, even when you know you didn't mean to hurt someone, um, even when you know, you know you had a good reason for what you did. It's demonstrating care for that other person. I'm sorry I hurt you. They are like some of the hardest words to say without qualification, aren't they? You guys, you guys think these are hard words to say? 
I'm sorry I hurt you without any defensiveness? Because it's so hard to do when we feel misunderstood or if we feel like someone doesn't see us for who we are. But saying I'm sorry I hurt you is just a way of communicating your heart matters to me. You have value and worth. It's a form of serving in our relationships with others uh, with another heart that maybe needs to know its own worth in that moment. Now, it's through the grace of God and it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we're invited to serve others, not out of victimhood, not out of slavery, not out of oppression, not out of denying our own needs and desires, but out of actually the Christ-like greatness that he's given us. The Apostle Paul, he wrote in his letter to the Philippians, even though Jesus was God, he didn't consider his equality with God as something to be exploited. But instead, he emptied himself, turned himself into a form of a servant in all of his power and greatness. He chose to humble himself. And that's, that's how it works. It's, it's about choosing to humble ourselves. But, uh, you know, because God in Christ so chooses to serve us and to love us unconditionally, uh, to wipe away our sins when we confess them, to give us a fresh start every day if we need one, uh, to put his own spirit in us, to comfort us, because he serves us daily, we're invited to his project of redemption that's underway in the world. Um, you guys are each invited to be agents of grace and blessing and forgiveness and hope by choosing to serve in that humble way that Jesus spoke of. You're invited by the grace of God to shower grace on that family member that you know painfully well is imperfect. You're invited through the enablement of the Holy Spirit to forgive and to love the coworker who has a chronic bad attitude and has never experienced the transformational love of God. You're invited to participate in God's redemption project to renew the world with his love. And through this, as we partner with Jesus in this, we're going to see hearts come alive. We're going to see people restored. We're going to see hope and faith in God revived in the people who are in our spheres of relationship and influence. But we can't really do this on our own. Like, I just don't think we can muster up enough sheer force of will to be like Jesus all the time, you know? Especially when we're hurting, especially when we're angry. We really can only do that by the power of God, by the Spirit of God, and just leaning on his love of remembering how valuable and great he thinks each one of you are, of just recalling to mind the ways in which Christ serves us daily and has served us. So if you need a fresh reminder of the love of God for you, uh, let's let communion this morning just be a moment of remembrance that God is here in our midst. I mean, that was the song that, that Maya led us in. You are here. God, you're holy. God is with us. Um, that God will never leave us or forsake us. We can never go so far from him that he won't be able to find us. So I want you to take the wafer out of your communion cup today. And I want you to turn to someone and I want you to look them in the eye and I want you to say, this is the body of Christ broken for you, okay? This is the body of Christ broken for you. Okay, let's take the bread together.
Okay, let's, let's take our cup now, and I want you to turn to someone and tell them, this is the blood of Christ poured out for you. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. And let's take the cup together. Can you guys pray with me for a moment? Father, I thank you so much for your presence here in this place. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you are a God who wanted to demonstrate such radical love to us, that you made yourself human, and you made yourself weak, and you submitted to suffering on our behalf. Lord, I pray that you would grip us with the reality of that, which is just sometimes so hard to fathom. Lord, may each soul who is sitting here in this room uh, experience your peace in this moment. Lord, in all the ways they're, they're doubting their own identity, they're doubting their own value, they're doubting their worth in the world, Lord, may the peace of the Holy Spirit just fall upon their heart right now. May they know the love of God, which is without condition, is no respecter of persons, May the things that they've been afraid of, the harmful words that people have spoken to them over the years or even this week, Lord, I pray that those things, the power of them would just fall away and that you would reconnect us with your boundless love and empower us, Jesus, empower us to be agents of your grace and your blessing in this world. Empower us in our hardest relationships to give others a taste of the love of God. Empower us, Lord. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen.